some of the things that I got were very deep. And I, I had one student come up to me and she's now a seventh grader. And she, she said, I really like it. I want to do it. I want to do it in real life. She's now really looking at writing, which is a great skill to have, especially in, in middle school. And I think that even if she doesn't do anything with music or rap or anything like that, she at least has a way to express herself, which is ultimately the best tool that we could possibly give our students. Podcast PDNC. Where it's not sit and get. It's listen and launch. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back to Podcast PDNC. Today we're talking to music teacher Kevin Endries about how his eclectic background and creative use of technology come together to create meaningful experiences for his students. So Kevin, it's so good to talk to you today. We are um, really excited because you're a music teacher. So can yep. you start by giving us a little bit of background about who you are, how you ended up as in education and, and what it is that you do? So I'm originally from Cincinnati, Ohio. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, where I spent most of my life there. And uh, if it wasn't for a fifth grade music teacher um, telling me I was tone deaf, uh, and then I went to another school in sixth grade. And it wasn't for that te those two teachers, the one that told me I was tone deaf and the one that I was that said, hey, look, uh, I don't care if you're tone deaf, we're going to find a place for you in the choir. I wouldn't be a music teacher that I am today. As, and of course, down the journey, I've, I've went to to interact with other music teachers in Ohio. But uh, yeah, I'm originally from Ohio, got a bachelor's degree in uh, music education from Heidelberg University. And I'm, I, I kind of find myself as a unicorn, so to speak, in the education world, because I also have a master's degree from um, Xavier University in special education, what we call exceptional children down here. I've worked with barbershop quartets, barbershop choruses in the Cincinnati area, sung in the world choir games, competed in multiple competitions for singing with quartets and choruses, and um, have multiple years teaching both as a special ed teacher or EC teacher, as well as a high school, middle school, and elementary music teacher. Currently, I am in Franklin County at Terrell Lane Middle School mainly, and then I also teach at Lewisburg High School. Uh, so I teach vocal music at the high school level, and then I teach the general music program and the vocal music program at Terrell Lane. And uh, at Terrell Lane, I also help with the wrestling program. And I am also a former powerlifter and strongman competitor, too. Uh, so I, I have a lot of different backgrounds. Uh, I've competed in, in, in multiple competitions with both that, with wrestling, jiu-jitsu, uh, coached mixed martial arts. So I have a lot of different things, a lot of unique experiences when it comes to my education that I kind of draw in from also my personal background. We often talk about the whole child, but I think that sometimes we don't talk enough about the whole teacher and what you just said encompasses that, you know, we're more than our title. So um, I think that that wealth of background probably serves you and your kids and your school community a whole lot. So, oh, yes. 
One of the things that I found really interesting was that you're teaching history of hip hop and history of rock music to middle schoolers. So can you give us a little bit more on that? I like to be on the very outside the box, if not very on the edge of things. And um, when we closed for the pandemic of COVID-19, I had a, an interesting sort of experience because a lot of my students, I would keep regular hours. Now, some, some people may know me, um, a lot of people won't. I have a two-year-old son and my wife is a science teacher as well. So we, we, we have a whole little family of teachers, I guess you could say. And uh, she had to teach and maintain her normal schedule and I had some slight flexibility in mind. And so I had a lot of time and when my students wouldn't show up for my office hours or for just my classes. And at that point it was like March, April, May. And we, all of us, even in the state of North Carolina, we had no idea what we were doing, what was going on. And it was all big question mark with things. And so I read a bunch of articles and uh, I've always been, even before this, I've always been trying to tie in stuff from what the students know and what the students are interested in. And that goes back to a lot of educational philosophy and educational research. But I read an article about, um, and in fact, I, I connected with the guy over this pandemic break summer thing that we had. Um, and he originally taught at Michigan State when he wrote the article. And it was talking about how the students took control of the classroom in making their music and showing their understanding with their music. And that really pushed me to do this with the middle schoolers. And a lot of my students um, come from Lewisburg where there's a mixture, an interesting mixture of a lot of country and hip hop, um, a lot of trap music. So trap music is like an offshoot of, of hip hop and of development of hip hop. And so I said, well, man, how about I just do a history of rock for one grade level? Because I teach seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade general music. How about I do history of rock for the eighth grade, history of hip hop for the seventh grade, and kind of draw them in? Yes, I love that. That sounds like a great way to connect and make your course relevant to middle school, to to really to whatever age. How did you address or navigate issues that could come up with using real content and and current lyrics. You write a very, very fine line in what's appropriate. And so I have to be very, very mindful and very, very careful about what the songs I present, the people who I present to them. And really it's the history of hip hop is about the three founding fathers of hip hop. Uh, you have DJ Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, and uh, African Bombada. And I really taught the basics of who they are, where they came from, and how they developed hip hop music. And then we go into a little bit with the Sugar Hill Gang. And then when you get past that, you kind of get more into the inappropriate things and inappropriate topics that you would think of with middle school. So I switch gears and I say, okay, here are some tech tools. Here's like BandLab or um, some other different sampling equipments and Soundtrap and different things like that. That sounds like a great way to solve a problem and switch it up with some cool technology. So tell us about how the students are creating their own projects to wrap this all together. 
there's going to be a project where we've also explored slam poetry as a part of this this course and so i first start with them having to experience slam poetry after we go through the founding fathers of hip-hop look at slam poetry and then kind of put the two together because that's ultimately what hip-hop and rap is and so it's a little bit of composition music composition a little bit of literature because i do teach them a little bit about some of the the poetic devices and literary devices that are in there and then also a lot of it i've noticed that has to do a lot with with social emotional learning we talk a lot about educators right now with social emotional learning on how they are are isolated the students are isolated most often from with virtual learning and 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 things like that so last semester i uh, i did this and it was the first time i've ever taught history of hip-hop and first time i've ever done something like this before uh, i did like a little mini unit last year last school year and it was like okay yeah that's pretty cool and so i expanded it and some of the things that i got were very deep and i i had one student come up to me and she's now a seventh grader and she she said I really like it. I want to do it. I want to do it in real life. She's now really looking at writing, which is a great skill to have, especially in, in middle school. And I think that even if she doesn't do anything with music or rap or anything like that, she at least has a way to express herself, which is ultimately the best tool that we could possibly give us uh, to give our students. Because that way, even if they do nothing with that, that's, that tool of expression can be used in so many different facets. Kevin, I love your reference to SEL and the connections that music can make with students and the way you use it as an avenue to connect literature and poetry. It's really the whole package. And it reminds me of how Amanda Gorman just, at least for me, came out of nowhere and captivated everyone with her poem at the inauguration. Can you tell us more about how you connect poetry in your class? funny story I taught in Rochester New York for a year while my wife pursued her master's degree and I taught at an all-male high school uh, all-male charter school Virtus High School that I taught at and they had a slam poetry club and every every uh, I think it was like every quarter or twice a quarter they would have uh, people from that slam poetry club get up in front of the entire school and present and that was my first exposure to slam poetry. It was about five years ago. And I went, holy smokes, that is a incredibly powerful tool. And so when I dive into the slam poetry stuff, I actually had one of my former students. Um, I reached out to him. And I said, hey, Desmond, could you could you possibly talk to my students, like record a video and, and tell your experience about it? Just a short little thing. And so he did. And when we started looking at the um the the poems that were read i tried to pick ones that were very tied to like learning difficulties or there's one called can't read can't write and that's a that's a great one um talking about a kid who grew up being a basketball player basketball star but at the end he can't even read and he can't even write um and we talked about how though that the delivering of the message is is one thing but what you write the context of what you write di diving deeper into it and looking at the words 
is much more meaningful because then you really get to know the story behind the person. And then I bring it back. Um, <clears throat> and unfortunately, there's I, I tell the students if they want to go experience this as an extension, they can, but to get their parents' permission and guidance and things like that, that the message by uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five is a huge landmark one that talks about the rough um, experiences of the Bronx, New York during the time of the development of hip hop in the 70s and 80s. So it's, there's so many things you could teach literary wise where it, it would be great. It, it's great to kind of dive into. One question I had for you, Kevin, is you mentioned slam poetry and um, mm -hmm. the connection with literacy. Do you ever find books with that in it, like find slam poetry books or characters? There's a couple that I'm thinking of, so I'm just wondering if you tie that in at all. No, honestly, what I do is I try to pull from people that I, I know, mm -hmm. just like what I try to do with um, rock music. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of try to connect with musicians that I've bumped into. I think and that's awesome. Say, hey, I think you might owe me a favor. <laughs> And so, yeah, I, I, I kind of draw on the people I've kind of bumped into. And then, um, and then there's Facebook groups and social media groups all over the place that I just post to and I go, hey guys, I'm looking for something like this. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh yeah, go to this source or go to this website or go to this video. This one's great. That one's great. Mm -hmm. So that's how I really draw from things. Well, and I think there's power in that, you know, in, in what Stacy brought up with Amanda Gorman and, you know, is, is, and I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sure you're tired of it after six years, but Hamilton, you know, and what does something like that do for young people to see the power of spoken word and, and, you know, the way Lin-Manuel Miranda used hip hop to do everything what Stacy said too, you know, to tell this story in a way um, and in a medium that really reaches um, a totally different audience. So I just, the, the, so I think there's power in there seeing in kids to see real people do this, right? Like this is Lin-Manuel Miranda might be a, you know, Shakespeare of our time, but um, you know, that people on, that you're friends with, that, you know, people you meet on Facebook, that this is something that they do. It's not just something that happens, a guy in New York that has, you know, the ability to put it on Disney plus. Um, but a couple books came to mind for me that have, you know, when you're talking about slam poetry and what that experience is like for somebody that's never seen it or been in a cafe or um, a place where they would actually do this. There's a couple books I've read that really did root me in that place. And um, on the come up by Angie Thomas, all okay. the themes that you're talking about with hip hop and life experiences that she has and she's kind of funneled into the slam poetry world so she kind of uses it as an as not just an expression but actually like to survive and then another one is the poet x by elizabeth acevedo those are two that just came to mind they're, they're young adult but i think your seventh eighth graders probably have heard of you know angie thomas and elizabeth acevedo and i don't know it just jumped out at me as as a couple things that that's that's the heart of the book is, is slam poetry and, and pulling in the hip hop history into what they're experiencing. Yeah. Well, it's funny. You mentioned um, Hamilton, one of the history teachers there, Jordan Currit. He's awesome. He is a, a Cleveland guy. Like I am. We, we are big fans of everything Cleveland. Um, I'm kind of jealous though, because he has a Cleveland Browns flag in his room and I don't have one yet. So I, I need to get that. But I was walking by his room and he's teaching the fundamentals of early government in our country. And he brings up Hamilton and they show things of Hamilton. 
And I'm walking past his room and he has his windows open and I stop and I go, huh. And so I got a chance to talk to him. I said, I might have something for you. Instead of doing the seventh grade hip hop, I might turn it to eighth grade so that we, we can support that and tie it all in. And he said, well, actually, what I'd like you to do is try to keep it in seventh grade so that way when they come to eighth grade, they can actually understand what I'm trying to get to them with, with, this, with, with this musical. I said, okay. So I've, I've worked, I've mentioned it to my teachers and then the word has kind of gotten out in my school that I'm doing this kind of stuff. And, and the great thing is that some of the teachers have come to me and said, hey, Mr. E, how's it going? And I go, hey, yeah, okay. Music ties to content in so many ways and that mm -hmm. collaboration is so powerful so it's powerful i love that idea of, of planting it in seventh grade so that when they come to eighth grade they um you know are, are building upon a foundation that they got in music like i just again that that pulling that content music connection is just so powerful and i'm excited that people in your building use you in that way and that people hearing this will will start thinking in the same way as well Oh yeah, and that's and that's the great thing about where I'm at currently with Franklin County. We always are talking with other teachers in our within our school, and we're constantly uh, to use a wrestling analogy: uh, iron sharpens iron, and we're constantly bumping into each other with ideas. Your collaboration stories and and how the the different teachers are talking to you remind me of the middle school that I taught at, where we were going through some project-based learning training and. Mm -hmm the after we did all the official stuff with the buck institute and all of that that sort of thing one of the our, our kind of culminating project was to come up with a interdisciplinary pbl unit mm -hmm. and we were all put on teams so it was you know say my seventh grade team with a math science social studies and language arts teacher and then we had um, the encore teachers joining us too so one at least one encore teacher and one specials teacher so everybody had a foot in the door in in one of these and molly's gonna laugh because one of my examples is always mitosis and cell division i don't know why i don't know why but uh, that was my little unit that, you know, component of this thing that I was putting together. So I gave the kids the, the, the challenge to come up with a way to express their understanding of cell division yeah. in the whole thing, the chromosomes and all of the different cell organelles and all the things they would need to know. So they, um, a group of them worked with their creative movement teacher and they came in with different colored t-shirts, rope, carbiners you know to hook these ropes together and they acted out and they did this dance that was they had started off as one cell and then they divided into two and they had music going on in the background so i could see where if they had a music teacher who could help them you know have somebody in the back doing a you know doing a song to it it, it would have been the whole package and i guarantee you um, those kids who were the chromosomes and getting pulled apart by ropes and carbiners remember it way more than um, me putting a slide up during some direct instruction. So my question is, do you have a story of something that went in an unexpected way with one of your students? That um... <laughs> So it's, it's interesting because what PBL, I, PBL lends itself to multiple pathways, which is great. And during the coronavirus and in traditional teaching, we commonly think of exit tickets and worksheets. 
So before we go any further, I want to say for the record that carbiners is actually not a word and it's supposed to be carabiners. I know this. Anyways, I blame stage, I, I, I blame stage fright. Back to traditional approaches to teaching, which Kevin was so eloquently discussing a minute ago. We've seen a lot of that too, especially in the beginning. Similar to, I feel, when we started with tech in the classroom, the most obvious place for a lot of teachers to start was at the substitution level, right? Let's figure out how to get this quiz that I used to give on paper into a computer or a worksheet or something like that. And students, I have to say, students are more comfortable there too, especially in the upper grades where they're used to a more traditional approach of direct instruction and an exit ticket or a quiz. So if kids have figured out school, you know, they kind of know the drill. So Kevin, tell us how you got your music students to embrace a different approach. Last semester for my high school music group, uh, they, they didn't really appreciate this. They, they did, but they didn't because it was a weekly assignment that they had to do and it was a song each week. And so they were like, Mr. E, why are you throwing all this stuff at us? I said, well, it's a vocal music class, so sing. Um, and, and I tell them, look, you're not gonna be told, you're, I'm not gonna give these videos out to the rest of the, the, the uh, class. The way you can toggle the, the view in Flipgrid is that only the instructor sees it. So it's really great because not only can I collect data from their singing and then coach them because I can give them feedback. But then I was sitting there and a lot of my students were using the text entry tool for a lot of their responses in the middle school to talk about music history with, with history of rock. I'd have them do a, watch a video of a performance and I'd have them I give them a little bit of background on where this was in history, um, especially when you talk about Beatles mania and so much happened in the 1960s. It's just tremendous. 1960s was a very um, tumultuous time in our in our country's history. You have so many rich things that happened there. But instead of using it as like a feedback tool like I have with my vocal music, my my EC teacher brain kicked in also. And I said, well, man, if I do it as a discussion board, open it up and students can reply and they can reply to other students and we can have that whole discussion because ultimately that's what musicians do. I mean, if you look at social media, musicians go back and forth all the time. And now with the coronavirus restrictions and, and different things we have to do, we can't necessarily have a chat face-to-face. -face. I've seen not only my EC students, their, their performance and engagement their grades ultimately have improved and combine that with some other teachers that have kind of stumbled upon probably similar things. We're now offering a lot more professional development in Flipgrid to begin with, with our teachers and how can you use it in other categories and how can you use it in other content areas? Because that alone, I saw a huge spark in it. I was like, wait, there's something there. And that, that definitely addresses those kids who have learning, dis, uh, learning disabilities that can't read very well or can't write very well, but they can talk really well. So why not give them the mic and say, hey, here, go for it. I have experienced that firsthand. I had an IEP growing up. I was a learning disability kid. I, I would read things and they'd say, okay, what'd you read about? And I go, I don't know. I have no clue. 
or when I go to write, I have to physically, I still do this as an adult. I write out every little thing that I want to talk about in a, like if I'm writing an essay or something, or even a letter sometimes to people. And I take those experiences, I go, man, if I had Flipgrid, where instead of just simply writing it out, I could talk it out, it's great. And that's ultimately that real life experience EBL does. The, the thing about Flipgrid that I've seen as a instructional technology facilitator was that when it first came out, it was seen as very new, new very cool, very, you know, kind of kind of like candy in the candy jar, you know, something that you would, you would just dip into, at least this is, this is the way I, my impression of it. And, and then I started to hear, um, well, you know, kids are tired of Flipgrid because it, it, because it was something that they were only using for these special occasions. And what it's moving to is what you're talking about, which is it's not about Flipgrid. It's about what it can do as a tool for my kids. And the fact that it's a tech tool kind of fades into the background and it just becomes a great way to collect and organize all of this feedback, whether it's visual or audio or text or reactions, all of those things that, that Flipgrid offers. I think that. it's really important too, like that, again, that you're able to model for other teachers in your building, the social aspects of, um, you know, what you're doing, that using Flipgrid as a social tool, instead of it just being a one-to-one connection, like, yes, you can make it work that way, like you mentioned with your coaching, the vocal coaching, but that when it comes to, you know, giving reaction and feedback that the kids needed a social outlet. And that's what Flipgrid was. It wasn't, I'm going to use Flipgrid. It was the kids need this and here's a solution, you know? And the other thing that I, I noticed in listening to you talk is that your EC background, um, you cut, it seems like you come into everything with the UDL, you know, the universal design learning that's where you come in, you know, like that is just everything that you were saying about accessibility and design and students taking the lead and saying what they need. Like, those are all things that I think, again, too often get focused in the content area and get like side, you know, the special stuff gets sideswept, you know, oh, well, they don't need that as, you know, our teachers don't need to know about that or librarians don't need to worry about that. And that's just not true. You know, what you are saying here shows it happens everywhere that UDL is something that needs to be encompassing for accessibility and, and whatever uh, realm those students are learning in. So appreciate you saying that and that it leads to better engagement, <laughs> you know, like that's like, why, why can't we make that connection across the board that when you give students a design, a learning system that is designed for them and increases engagement. And you're like, oh, and also their grades went up. Like that was probably my favorite thing that you said was Thank like you. all these great things. And also, yeah, I mean, I guess their grades are pretty good. <laughs> well, and, and the interesting thing about that is that, I mean, you can look at the data of it and, 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 and I do have a fair amount of kids that just don't engage right now. And that's the sad part. Um, but what Flipgrid will allow you to do is it'll allow you to mimic that back and forth between the interaction between not only the teacher and because you can jump in as a teacher and and post on the like the, the discussion threads and things videos so far too many times I, I can't even begin to count how many classes I've taught to little tiny tiles all the way across my screen but uh, although far too many times I'm actually at the smart board and I'm I've shared my screen and then I'm doodling on the smart board, all the music stuff and 
or I have a slideshow presentation, I'm bouncing between that and my notes and everything else. But it, it definitely is trying to bring a traditional side of education mixed with uh, that. But it's, it's interesting because I find myself not necessarily being the first one to discover this kind of stuff. I'm, I'm sure, I'm almost positive. There's at least 10 teachers in my building that have done something like this already. Um, it's just, I'm, I'm stumbling upon it, looking at it from going, oh, my kids could really use this. And instead of trying to decipher what they're writing, they can explain it. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, that's it right there. Like when people ask what UDL is, it's exactly what you said, that not every kid is going to best express themselves through writing, you know, or through the one outlet that you give them to respond back, you know, whatever the assessment is, having multiple modes for them to be able to respond and whatever's best for them. So I just think that's a really powerful way that, you know, you're, you're tapping into so many different things that we've talked about here. But I, you know, one of the things that Stacy and I we're kind of sidebarring, not going to lie to you. We're having like, okay, you ask this. No, you ask this. It's all good. I'll even show it to you if you need to see it. But, um, you know, one of the things that we've both been saying is like, hello, UDL. Like, this is so clear that, you know, that you are coming at it. Um, and Stacy is wonderful with per personalized learning. She's our guru on the team about personalized learning. And uh, you're speaking her language as well. So it's been fun to pull these connections to so many things that, again, feel like, you know, as a, as a, teacher, any teacher, right? Feels like, oh, you're going to tell me I have to use digital learning and I have to have UDL and I have to have personalized learning. And, you know, and they they see these things as multiple orbits when really it's all layered together is what makes the best learning experience. So um, everything you've talked about, I think feels like it satisfies all that very, very well. We could probably go on talking about this for another hour, but I think that's the perfect note to end on. Even though it feels like tech integration and universal design for learning and personalized learning, all of these things are in their own separate orbits, they actually boil down to good teaching. So thank you, Kevin, so much for spending time with us and sharing your creativity on our podcast. And stay tuned out there to hear more from Kevin and his students on Moments of Inspiration. They are creating their own podcasts, and the project sounds amazing. At the end of each episode, we sign off with a challenge. Since podcast PDNC isn't sit and get, but rather listen and launch, the episode's challenge will involve reflection and should ignite some change in your practice. This isn't homework. No one will check for participation or give you a grade. But we hope you use it to continue taking the next step in your journey once the episode has run its course. The challenge today is centered around Kevin's phrase, just one thing. What is the one thing that you can take away from the episode and try in your classroom right away? Or what is one thing that you identified with that you're already doing to harmonize your work with students and the principles of universal design for learning? The show notes on bit.ly forward slash podcast PDNC provide a few links to resources for UDL and the book on project-based teaching that Kevin mentioned. So, until next time, everybody. Podcast PDNC. It's not sit and get. It's listen and launch. Five, four, three.